My name is Richard Hill, and welcome to the sixth edition of the Monthly Labor Report, in which we'll cover some of the good trouble that the working-class majority has been getting into this past month, i.e. militant union organizing, contract negotiations, and perhaps some imminent strikes. And we'll do all this with the help of Michael Zweig, economist, professor emeritus at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. He's a union activist, an author of many articles and books, including The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret, What's Class Got to Do With It?, and his just published Race, Class, and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. And that's published by PM Press. Well, Michael, it's great to have you back for the sixth edition of the report here in February. As you may have noticed, I borrowed a line from the title of one of your books, namely The Working Class Majority, in my intro there. That's a concept that I hope will be gaining ground and prominence in our culture at large, the notion that we do have a working class majority. So... We should probably begin by having you review what that pesky and feisty working class has been up to this past month. Why don't you kick it off with some... Well, good to hear from you. Uh, Good to be with you again. Yes, there's a lot going on in the world of labor in the last uh, month since we last spoke. And uh, most of it is good, except that uh, the corporate leadership of the country continues to resist everything that workers try to do. But there is uh, some definitely positive developments here. Of course, the UAW, with their very successful strike last uh, fall in the auto industry, was uh, a great victory. And the UAW decided that on the strength of those successes that they would actually go back into the American South and try to organize transplants, so-called, companies from Japan and Germany that are uh, operating in assembly plants uh, in the American South in non-union territory, where the UAW now wants to go and break through that non-union barrier and bring those workers in uh, uh, auto plants in the South into the UAW uh, and to characterize the importance of the union to those workers through their victory in uh, their negotiations uh, just this past year with the big three automakers in Detroit. And they are focused right now on a Mercedes-Benz plant in Alabama. Uh, And Alabama, of course, is just a decidedly anti-union political environment. And the governor of the state, uh, Governor Ivey, has announced that she is devoting all possible resources to destroying the union's efforts to unionize the workforce in that Mercedes-Benz plant. So, you know, that's a fairly significant opposition, of course, together with the company. Despite all that, the union has already gotten over 30% of the workers in that plant to sign cards saying that they want a union there. And when it gets to be uh, more like 50, 60, 70% of the workers filing cards asking for a union, and declaring their support for a union there in that facility, then uh, the UAW will go to the National Labor Relations Board to try to get an election certified to actually go forward with a vote. 
And we'll see how that goes. But the uh, union is very aggressively organizing in that plant. And they have an organizing committee in the plant. It's not just outside organizers coming in from other places to try to get these workers. It's the workers themselves in that plant that are uh, leading that charge. So that's a very uh, positive uh, development there. Yeah, Michael, I read a very interesting article. You may have read the same article in a publication called Labor Notes, which I think comes out every week. And it was by a worker who's actually involved in the internal organizing of that plant. And it was fascinating the way he described the new tactics inspired by the UAW victory and this new militant leadership that's coming down from Sean Fain and through the ranks into the organizing efforts by UAW. You know, it's just interesting getting into the nuts and bolts of what it takes to circumvent management tactics to snuff out efforts at the plant level, at the line level, because that's what we're talking about, an assembly line plant. You talked about, you know, having runners or people that move up and down the line who are not anchored to the line and who can talk to workers as they go and spread the word, you know. So it's like an effort of getting the word around the plant as opposed to a a sort of centralized committee that that tries to come down with edicts and and put them forth in the plant. So I think uh, these folks have learned over the years because they've tried to organize that plant in past years. And the UAW, I think, has been down there, but with much less aggressive efforts from the auto workers. But now with this new militant leadership, it's apparently the tactics by the UAW organizers have changed as well. Well, they're focused on mobilizing the workers themselves to be the organizing committee. So that if you have people on the inside who are able to move from their workstation because that's their job is to move from place to place. Yeah then that's a very, very valuable resource for mobilization and for organizing and for taking the temperature of what the workforce is ready to do and what they're interested in. So I think that the uh, UAW there has a better chance than they've ever had, and uh, and we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Are they also something to organize a Hyundai plant in Alabama? You know, they, there are all different plants so-called transplant factories, transplanted from Germany and Japan into the United States to produce for the U.S. market. And uh, there are a number of different companies, Japanese and German, that are operating throughout the South. And I don't exactly know which particular plants the UAW is focusing on right now. I believe it's a Mercedes plant. Mercedes-Benz plant. Yeah, that's definitely one. I, I thought I saw something about Hyundai as well. but Well, there may be yeah. uh, uh, something going on with a Hyundai, uh, Hyundai H-Y-U-N-D-A-I, yeah. a Hyundai plant. And I think that there is definitely an organizing campaign going on there as well. I'm not so sure that it's as far advanced as the, the Mercedes plant. I did see a, a brief video of that organizing campaign down there uh, from 2016 that did not go anywhere uh, successfully for the union. But I think they may be now trying to resurrect that old struggle and see where that can go uh, with his new leadership. Uh Aha. Any other breaking news on the labor front? 
Well, you know, there's there's a couple of things. There's also the question of the, the Starbucks campaign. Uh-huh. And that Starbucks campaign is really a remarkable success from a couple of years ago when the first Starbucks was organized in Buffalo, New York. There are now 483 Starbucks stores in 46 states that have filed for unionization. Of those 483, the votes have been positive in 385 stores in 43 states. Some of those uh, that are not counted in that 385 are still waiting to vote. But overall, it's it's like an 80% win rate. So if you go into Starbucks stores around the country and you try to organize, 80% of the time, the workers in that store are going to say, yeah. And that's not just in uh, New York and California. That's in 43 states all across the country. So that, again, is a sign of the newfound militants and the newfound union orientation that young workers in particular are bringing to work. And uh, it's a very, very interesting development. Now, Starbucks announced a couple months ago that they were willing to sit down and negotiate with these 385 stores. However, I mean, that sounds good, but they refuse to do that uh, online. They demand that it be an in-person negotiation. But there are people from all these different states and if they want to unify in one bargaining drive, rather than just get picked off store by store, well, they can't do it without having it be online, you know, through Zoom or something like that. Yeah. So while Starbucks is saying, oh, yes, we're ready to negotiate, they're basically saying we're really ready to negotiate, except on terms that don't allow for negotiations <laughs> uh, or on just on terms where we can go store by store and pick them off. So that is where that Starbucks campaign now stands. Now, it turns out that a very large percentage of Starbucks stores are on college campuses. At Stony Brook, for example, at State University of New York at Stony Brook, where I taught for many, many years, there is a Starbucks. And so there's a campaign going on on the campus at Stony Brook, but on campuses all over the country where there are Starbucks stores to bring pressure to get Starbucks to negotiate in good faith all across the country. Now, at Stony Brook, it's an interesting set of problems because at Stony Brook, it's a franchise store. It's, it's not owned by Starbucks directly. It's a franchise store that is run by a company that runs the food service on the campus, not uh-huh. just Starbucks, but the campus dining halls and all that. Those stores are all unionized. So the Starbucks at Stony Brook has union members, and they negotiate a contract with the food service company, not with Starbucks. So we don't, the students at Stony Brook and in other campuses where that's the case are not saying, oh, don't buy here because this is a non-union shop because it is a union shop. But what they're trying to do is to get the university and other parts of the campus to put pressure on Starbucks, not the particular contractor that, you know, food service, but Starbucks to shape up on the behalf of the unions, 
uh, efforts around the country. And so that is another element of this Starbucks campaign that's going on on campuses all across the country and where there are uh, non-union food services that are running these uh, services on campus. There, there is an attempt to get the campus administration to end the contracts with Starbucks until they negotiate in good faith around the country. Who determines the actual pay of the employees? Let's say Stony Brook. Is it the food service company or is it it's Starbucks? The food service com- no, it's, no, it's not Starbucks. It's yeah. the food service company in negotiation with the union that represents those workers. Mm-hmm. So Starbucks is, really isn't in that equation. That's right, except yeah. that it's a Starbucks store. <laughs> Very confusing. I have one other question about Starbucks, and that is... Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Is there an overarching union which is to which all these individual Starbucks stores are feeding into, or are they all individually organized and have their own organizing sort of setup where they can't really cross-fertilize with the other stores? No, it is one organizing effort across the country, but of course it's organized uh, store by store. So yeah. in each store, there is an organizing campaign, an organizing committee, and uh, an election to vote among the members, do we want a union here or not? But the union is the same across the country, and that is called the, the Starbucks Workers Union. It's an independent union, but it's supported by uh, the, the main labor movement. And so there is a union for all the Starbucks workers around the country this Starbucks Workers Union, but it has its organizing campaigns going on store by store. So it's both local and part of an overarching uh, campaign, which is seeking to, to negotiate on behalf of everybody with Starbucks centrally, rather than just having Starbucks negotiate store by store, where they have tremendously more power, and the store by store technique has much reduced power to the workers in a particular Starbucks if they're not connected to other ones. My name is Richard Hill. I'm here with Michael Zweig, and this is the monthly labor report, which comes to you the first Tuesday of each month, about nine o'clock, thereabouts. (laughs) It also is uh, posted on our SoundCloud page, WPCAN SoundCloud page, and it is also gettable, or you can stream it off of the Between the Lines website, and you can find that at btlonline.org. So back to the fray here, sir. What what else have we got going on? Well, you know, I I think that one of the main arguments that has supported unionization drives in non-union shops historically in this country, certainly since uh, the New Deal, is that union workers make more money than non-union workers for the same work and with the same background so that unionization brings wage increases. And what's interesting, and uh, Doug Henwood had a very interesting piece in uh, a Jacobin where he looks at that wage differential between union wages and non-union wages in the same industry, the same job title. And as union density has fallen dramatically, density means the percentage or the fraction of workers that are in a union, which in the 1950s was over 30%, and now is around 10%. 
as union density has fallen, that wage differential for what unions can win compared to other workers has diminished. And that's a very important point if we're talking about the auto workers or even Starbucks workers to say to them, if you join a union, you're going to get better wages. The data that uh, Doug Henwood presents shows that the union hourly wage premium, that is, what is the percentage increase that a worker will have if they are part of a union rather than not, has gone from about 30% in 1978 to about 5% now. So that's pretty dramatic. You know, and that is because unions in general are much weaker because of that decline in union density. And so there is, you know, less of a spillover effect that unions have for non-union workers. And that pay differential is something that is sort of a calling card for unions that because unions have been weakened is a less important or a less powerful calling card. What can be done about that? I mean, given the, the uh, I mean, is there yet another remedy? Is more militant leadership in, in unions part of that issue? Well, yes, of course, because the way you get a wage increase is first you get a union, and then that union has to be prepared to really fight. One of the characteristics of, of the American labor scene today is that as difficult it is for workers to actually get a union recognized by a, a vote because of management resistance and management actually illegal practices. Well, as difficult as it is, once you get a union, you still have to go get a contract. And something like a third of all union organizing drives don't have a contract after the first year. So workers who are eager to get a union and then get one, but can't get the benefits of it because the company just stonewalls. That's the story we had a minute ago with Starbucks. You know, these workers are, are voting for a union. They're organizing a union. They're trying to uh, get collective bargaining going. Management just stiff arms them. Yeah. And they're supposed to negotiate in good faith. And it's an illegal practice, but there's no penalties. There's no fines, you know, the management can just do what they want. And uh, the only way to overcome that is through militant action and collective action and militant action in the plant or in the workplace, which doesn't have to be a strike. It could just be some job action or a slowdown or, you know, if you're going to pour the milk into the uh, cappuccino, you can take a little time making the little flour, uh, you know, and you can slow things down. There are a lot of ways to do that. And I think that that requires organization, it requires discipline, and a militant orientation that uh, some of this new leadership definitely is bringing into the mix now. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, that leadership and how it gets elected. You know, the UAW, just amazing example of a guy from rank and file who stood for an election in which the entire membership of that union got to vote. But that's the rare exception, isn't it? I mean, that, I think it's a like single digits, the numbers, the percentage of unions that actually have direct elections of their leadership. Most unions have election of leadership through their conventions. So workers elect delegates to go to a convention, and then those delegates elect leadership 
for the whole union. So there's a one degree of separation between the election of the union leadership and the membership. So in the case of the UAW, from the beginning of that union, the leadership has been elected at a convention by delegates who were elected at their locals. But what happened was, in the case of the UAW, and it also happened in the Teamsters, there was so much corruption that the federal government intervened and put the union in receivership. And then, as part of getting the union out of receivership and back into the hands of the members, the conditions of that required direct election by the members themselves. And so in the case of uh, Sean Fain, who was, uh, you know, came up out of a, a union in Indiana, in Kokomo, Indiana, where he was an electrician, but he was also, you know, had other positions in the local and in the region and then ran on a national scale. And so that is what was the condition that allowed him to bring that militant leadership. And it was a close vote. You know, I think it was like 49 to 50, uh, 51 to 49 or something like that. It was really close. But his uh, outlook and his orientation prevailed with the membership. And then he was able to mobilize that membership with that orientation into that militant set of strikes that they had and now into these organizing campaigns. So it has been argued that that direct, you know, more democratized selection of leadership leads to more militant leadership. And is there a way to increase that across the board so that more uh, unions elect their leadership in that way, directly well, by, the, by the membership? That yeah, is. well, that's a question of what the union's constitution is. And in order to change the, the election from a convention election to a membership election, you'd have to change the constitution of the union. Now, if the union is put in receivership because of a history of corruption and being mobbed up and other problems with the leadership, and then the conditions are imposed on the union to have direct election, yeah. then that change in the Constitution is imposed. If you don't have that, which let's hope most you know we don't have, let's see whether from the bottom up you elect delegates to go to the convention and then you have a, a vote there to change the rules. But uh, short of changing the Constitution, the union, you're not going to be able to change the uh, way in which officers are elected. Do you happen to know if that was always the case? Like, what about in the most militant years of, of labor organizing in the 30s and 40s? And there were tremendous success in, and supported by labor legislation, the federal level. I mean, has that always been the case that there, elections have been by delegate? Or did that change, let's say, with the Taft-Hartley Act or at some other point in history? As far as I know, the UAW and the Teamsters always had elections by convention uh, until recently, until recent years. So, and both of those came out of receiverships in order to be direct, uh, have direct elections. So I think that uh, this model of election by convention has a long history. 
And I think part of the reason for that is if you've got a national union, you've got an auto industry, auto union, you've got people all over the country. You know, in 1946, how are you going to campaign around the country? You know, it's really hard to get off work or to travel or to meet people when, you know, you don't have airplanes, you don't have Internet, you don't have the kind of infrastructure that will allow somebody to connect with members. It's much easier to connect with convention delegates because you're at a convention physically with everybody and you get to know the delegates, they get to know you, and you can develop a slate and you can develop a constituency among those delegates, which is much more difficult to do on a national scale, you know, in in earlier days of the labor movement. So I think that those technical reasons, those, those logistical reasons, often led to the leadership of the national level being done through conventions. At the local level, it's always been elections by the membership, membership as a whole. Yeah. Um, so I think you you know in 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 my union in in the AFT uh, in our United University Professions in in the state university system, we have elections at at a delegate assembly. We don't have direct election by members at the statewide level, and some people would like to change that. The problem is that if you change that and anybody who runs has to run through the whole state, if you're uh, somebody who's working in the uh, uh, housing office at the university who wants to run for state position, how are you going to get off of work and campaign around the state and go to all the different campuses, 30 different campuses around New York State? It's just not a practical possibility for somebody who isn't released from their everyday work to take on their union position. So that's one reason why I think, for example, in my union, keep the election by the delegates at a a statewide convention just because of the logistic of doing a campaign to the membership as a whole. The existing officers... Their job is to go to campus, to campus, to campus, to keep track of what's going on and to take the temperature and bring the union's position to the membership. So the existing leadership, their job is to go around the state. It's very hard to challenge that incumbency. You see what I'm saying? That there's that logistical issue that has to be overcome. And in different unions, it presents different uh, challenges. Yeah, understood. So finally, Michael, I wanted to ask you about what sounds like a fairly full frontal attack on the National Labor Relations Board by Trader Joe's stores or the corporation that runs Trader Joe's and Elon Musk. I presume that means Tesla, his entity. And they are concerned because uh, Trader Joe's, even though they brag about, you know, great pay and I think they give some kind of health care to their workers you know, if you go to a Trader Joe's store, all you got all these young young men and women who all look very happy and are bustling about. But Trader Joe's employees have been starting to try to organize uh, union campaigns in various stores around the country. And the corporation that runs Trader Joe's is getting very concerned about that. So they are, along with Elon Musk, are waging a, a campaign against the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB. Can you explain to us how 
they think they can prevent union organizing in their shops, in their stores. The by, National Labor Relations yeah. Board is an entity that's part of the federal government, it's part of the U.S. Department of Labor. And their task, their job, uh, is to supervise elections and to monitor unfair labor practices by companies or by unions that interfere with legitimate collective bargaining. And so that if you are a Starbucks worker and you want to have an election, it's a private sector that's separate for public sector workers. But in the private sector, if you get those cards signed and you're ready to have an election, you take those cards to the National Labor Relations Board and they supervise the election. So the task that Elon Musk wants to undertake and Trader Joe's and other companies is to take out the National Labor Relations Board, to remove its power, its authority, and to find ways to make legal arguments once there is an administrative decision by the National Labor Relations Board, yes, you have to have an election, they'll go into court and they'll say, wait a second, the National Labor Relations Board has no jurisdiction here, or they have no legitimate way of uh, telling us what we have to do because the law doesn't allow it in this circumstance. So it's part of the overall attack that the corporate world is making on uh, on the regu- so-called regulatory state, on regulation. So we see that now in the Supreme Court with the so-called Chevron decision, which dates back about 40 years, where the Supreme Court ruled that administrative agencies in the government, whether it's the uh, EPA or the National Labor Relations Board or any administrative agency, they have the right to make determinations of regulations, even if Congress didn't explicitly say that's what should happen. The Congress defers to, and the courts should defer to those agencies that are making these these regulations in interpreting the law that set them up. Well, what Musk and other corporate leaders are trying to do now is to take that outlook that says, we want to destroy the uh, regulatory state. We want to disempower the regulatory agencies. They want to apply that to the National Labor Relations Board the same way they want to apply it to the Securities and Exchange Committee or to the uh, Environmental Protection Agency or to any other government regulatory agency. And that is what is at stake here. Is there no ends to which corporate America will not go to stymie the best interests and aspirations of the working class majority? The answer is no. There is no <laughs> end to it. They, and they have been working for 75 years to claw back and to destroy every gain of every progressive movement, whether we're talking about voting rights or whether we're talking about labor rights or environmental protection or women's rights whether we're talking about sports uh, and the access to women to sports activity or uh, control of the, their own medical conditions in, in their bodies, all of those things are being clawed back systematically, step by step. And this campaign to undo the regulatory state is part of that. 
And again, that that so-called Chevron decision, which grew out in the 1970s or 1980s, where the court supported regulatory power, now they want to come back and say, wait a second, let's review that. Let's take that back. Just like the court said, yes, you ought to have affirmative action. Wait a second, let's review that. Let's take that away. And they take it away. And they're going to take, if they can, this away. And so this is all part of the campaign that we have to have to mobilize working people and women and minorities, African-Americans, everybody else to challenge this corporate power that wants to take back everything and bring themselves into the pinnacle of power unrestricted. That's where we are. That's what's going on. Michael, thank you so much for this bracing report. Another great one from you. And uh, we'll look forward to the next one. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's always good to be with you. These are very important discussions to have. And I'm very glad to be part of uh, the opportunity to do this. Great, Michael. Thank you so much. And uh, that's Michael Zweig, economist, professor emeritus from the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Let's 